Well, welcome to Trailblazing Techs. And today we have Taylor Myers with us, who is currently an admissions officer at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, Maryland. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah. And so before we go in a little bit further, I just wanted to let you have the opportunity to introduce yourself a little bit further. So go ahead and tell the listeners uh, a little bit about who Taylor is. I appreciate that, Brittany. Yeah, my name is Taylor Myers. I grew up in southeastern Ohio, a little town called Bellsville, uh, home to 300 people, mostly a community of coal miners and steel workers. From Bellsville, I went on to Marietta College, where I studied history, political science, and education, graduating in 2015. And then since then, I've worked in a variety of public service roles in politics and campaigning, K-12 education and higher education. Awesome. And we're definitely going to touch on that. I'm definitely very interested in your campaigning experience uh, as well. Before we jump into kind of the career discussion to to keep it kind of a little fun at the very beginning, you know, what have you been watching or reading to kind of pass the time outside of your day job uh, during quarantine? I love that question. I have been doing a book club, actually. Nice. Zoom with some of my Teach for America friends. And we have tonight at eight o'clock, our final discussion around little fires everywhere, which I think has just been turned into an Amazon Prime show. So I'm looking forward to watching it now. That nice. And what is it about just at a high level? So it's about two families in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is in Cuyahoga County, just outside of Cleveland, and sort of explores issues around class and race and Northeast Ohio throughout the book. Really enjoyed it. Definitely recommend it. Also been just reading on my own. A uh, great book, Crawling Behind, which is about childcare policy in the United States, thinking about zero to five childcare and education and preschool and the importance of that and also some of the issues families face in general. And in particular, thinking about that right now, too, as people are working from home and trying to raise kids at the same time, I'm sure it's difficult. Yeah, very, very relevant topic. Kind of when you and I touched base the other week, just as we were preparing for this, that was a huge kind of component we were talking about. It's kind of an age that a lot of us, I think, kind of just forget about just because, you know, most of the time you hear of kids in school, um, you know, normally ages five and above. And so uh, definitely really relevant. I think it's kind of been springboarded to front of mind for everyone all of the sudden, just because of what is going on and definitely a discussion that needs to be had. So uh, good stuff there. Um, me personally, I have been reading actually a really interesting book about um, healthcare because I, I sell into healthcare for technology. Right. And it's called An American Sickness. And it's kind of about how healthcare became kind of this more personal relationship into a massive business. Um, And so again, something that I kind of started reading before this, and it has turned into, you know, something that is very relevant today. So it's been very interesting to kind of like pick things up, watch them, read them. And then all of a sudden it has been very relevant to the climate today. Um, uh, An American Sickness? Yes, by Elizabeth Rosenthal. Elizabeth with an S. Oh, okay, good. I uh, yeah. put it down. I'll check it out. Yeah, that would definitely be something of interest to you for sure. And she, I believe, if I remember correctly, got her MD from Harvard, very educated. She mm-hmm. was a practicing doctor uh, as well. So uh, I would highly recommend it to anyone listening. And then for yourself, I know you would definitely find it interesting. So as an admissions uh, officer at Johns Hopkins, I would imagine before quarantine, you went to campus and you worked in an office on a regular basis, right? Yeah, I had very fortunate. I had a 10 minute walk to work. We'd go into Mason Hall every day, nine to five, Monday through Friday, except for when we were traveling for recruitment. Otherwise, I was right on the Homewood campus of Hopkins. And do you remember when you started working from home? Like how long it's been roughly? I think it was March 13th or March 15th, whatever that Monday was of that. Mm -hmm. And so a little over a month ago, they actually pulled us into a staff meeting in the middle of the day and said we had to be out by five o'clock. And so oh, wow. a big scurry. We had about four hours to pack up and head home. And I actually had to do the four o'clock virtual session that day. So I had to be out a little bit faster and get set up at my apartment, which is where I am now, and be able to interact with some students over Zoom. And so that session, that virtual session, were you interacting, uh, were you recruiting or was it for current students? So that was a recruiting session. Right now, we've been doing sessions every day at 12 and 4, at noon and 4, to interact with freshman, sophomore, junior students in high school, to tell them about Johns Hopkins and 
our key message points and any answer any questions they have. But yesterday, actually Saturday the 18th, we just had open house at your house, which was an event for our admitted students. So students, we offered a spot in the incoming class. They're currently high school seniors. And we did a series of coffee chats where we had 10 students or less on a Zoom call to interact with one admissions officer and one current student. Mm-hmm. And we did some larger programming with alumni and different academic departments, just trying to help students who are choosing between a few different schools figure out what Johns Hopkins really has to offer and what our differentiating factors are so they can make an informed decision. That's awesome. And you called it Our House at Your House? Was that the title? Uh, open House. Open House. Yeah. Open House at Your House. I like it. That's yeah, great tagline. I just put up a, a great promo video yesterday we sent out about it on my LinkedIn. So definitely it's like a 50 second video. It's really fun. You know, I like it. Cool. And it's a fantastic institution. So, you know, I'm sure kids that are considering it, it's definitely a tough decision between Johns Hopkins and probably some of the other institutions that they are deciding. And so one last thing about working from home, what has been the biggest challenge for you? And then what have you kind of learned as you've been navigating over the last month? It's a great question. I think the biggest challenge has been my sleep schedule. I've always been more of a night owl. And so now that work is a little bit more flexible, I find myself sitting on my futon at two in the morning, like, oh my gosh, I got to go to bed. Whereas if I was actually going in the office, dressed and ready by nine every day, it's easier to kind of be on that midnight to seven sleep schedule, midnight to eight sleep schedule. So just trying to stay active and, and stay healthy with good diet. And I go out, I'm a runner and nice. I like to, to go out and, and jog around the campus and jog around our track the, the most I can and still try to be socially distant. As you're doing. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And so as someone, I've always worked from home my entire career. And that's always been my biggest advice to people is just get on some sort of routine because all of a sudden, like you said, your days just become so gray where you're just like, I don't know what time it is. Should I be eating? Should I be going to sleep? Should I be working? And so I think that's kind of the biggest part of transitioning working from home. Um, of course, right now it's very difficult because people are working and they have kids and they might be caring for other family members, but kind of sticking to a schedule the best you possibly can is kind of the, the easiest way to, I think, to kind of get into working from home and, and feel like a normal person. Um, and so, so the good stuff there. So I want to kind of backtrack a little bit, as you talked about at the beginning, where you're from, you're from, from Southeastern Ohio. I'm originally from Texas. So before going to Marietta, I never knew anything about that region of Ohio. I, of course, knew where Columbus was and Cleveland and Cincinnati, but Southeastern Ohio didn't know anything about other than where the college was. And so you talked about your town being a small town uh, steel workers, right? And coal miners. That's right. So my dad and, and both my grandfathers all worked at Ormet Aluminum. Uh, both my grandfathers, 30 years each. My dad spent 35 years there before retiring. So 95 years between the three of them. And Ormet shut its doors in 2014. But before that, it was the number one employer in Monroe County. And number two and number three had always been Century Coal Mine and number six coal mine, which are two of Ohio's largest coal mines today. Wow. Very few that are left. And so the three biggest employers there, aluminum, uh, part of the United Steel Workers Union, and then coal miners, obviously part of the Mine Workers Union. So definitely have roots uh, that are around a working class community, uh, lower middle class community of, of blue collar workers, union guys. And those industries right now are completely gone or are on their way out. And so Eastern and Southeastern Ohio, we're at a period of transition, trying sure. to figure out how to rebuild and redesign and rethink our economy. For sure. And so with that coming from, you know, very honest, hardworking people, a very close knit uh, community, I feel like a lot of that, I don't know you very well, we went to school together, but I think that really has made an impact on you and kind of your career choice, especially with the campaign trail and education, and just kind of what you observed with, you know, communities working hard and also in a transition. And I would say as a world. We're kind of in a massive transition right now. We're trying to figure out what's next and we don't know necessarily what's next. But with that, you made a great point when we talked the other week that, you know, your father was uh, working hard. Uh, Meanwhile, your mom had the opportunity to stay home and raise Mm -hmm. you and you're one of five, right? 
I'm the oldest of five. So I have three younger sisters and a younger brother. My youngest sibling, Sophie, she just sent me a photo yesterday. She dressed up in her prom dress. Yesterday was supposed to be her high school prom as a junior. And so her friends, they all got dressed up at their homes and took pictures and then photoshopped <laughs> them together to make it look like they still had prom. So oh, man. my sister Sophie spent her weekend, but definitely grew up in a situation where my mom had a college degree. She went to Ohio University in Athens. Oh, you, oh, yeah. <laughs> studied special education and taught for seven years, but then made the transition to staying at home when I was born. And if it wasn't for support systems like WIC and, you know, my dad's job and and different components of the community and free lunch and things like that, we wouldn't have had the flexibility to live the life we did. And I certainly wouldn't have had the opportunities I did. And I think just having great teachers and great coaches throughout the K-12 system I started out at Woodfield Elementary and then Bellsville Elementary and then Bellsville High School. So all Switzerland of Ohio local school district is what it's called. It's actually the largest school district in the state of Ohio in terms of square miles. Wow. Except all of Monroe County and then parts of Belmont, Noble, and Washington, the counties that border it to the north, the west, and the south with the Ohio River on the east. And so kids in my school district coming from humble means And on the school bus a long time, a lot of rural issues impact us. I grew up in a house without internet. And so I would stay late at school doing homework, or I'd have to drive 30 minutes to the nearest McDonald's to use their Wi-Fi if I needed to, or if the library was still open, 30 minutes away, I could go to the Monroe County Public Library. But certainly seeing how public education and how government resources enabled my family to survive and Mm -hmm. me with the opportunity to go to Marietta. Uh, which, you know, I paid for myself through scholarships and loans and a little bit of money I made over the summer, but just being able to attend and participate and earn a Marietta College degree and Marietta College education, really that's because of a, a lot of different things, great friends and mentors and teachers and neighbors and the community and government did for me. Sure. And that motivated me to go into the classroom and try to help children uh, receive the best education they can and fulfill their full potential and chase their dreams. For sure. And so one thing you you touched on was WIC. And, and just for people who are listening that maybe are not familiar with, could you elaborate a little bit more on what WIC is? Yeah, it's a program that helps new mothers and young families obtain nutritious meals. And so you would go into the grocery store and use your WIC coupon. I'm not, back when I was a kid, it was still on paper. It probably is on a debit card of sorts now, I would imagine, maybe not. And you could get cereal and oatmeal and and milk and things. And that helped make sure that low-income families and working-class families had access to nutritious food for new mothers and for their infants. And that program, I think, runs a little bit differently for the zero to two population. And then you can still stay on it, I think, up through age four or age five. And then, obviously, you have free and reduced lunch at the school to help make sure that child's continuing to have a nutritious meal every day. And my school district had universal free breakfast, which was really a big help to my family and a game changer for me personally. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And those are, those are some things that I think definitely vary from area to area. Like you said, you had universal free breakfast. I've been hearing some of the districts just by me where, you know, kids now all of a sudden find themselves not having that meal, that breakfast or that lunch. And so again, we're kind of being, you know, just thrown into the situation where we realize how much kids and families really depend on schools, right? Outside of education, the obvious reason, but it's a safe environment. They have their friends, uh, they get meals that otherwise they wouldn't have. And so Again, another very important issue that I think many of us weren't aware of. I know for myself, I was fortunate enough where I didn't I didn't have to rely on those things, right? And so I've been I found myself learning a lot when I went to Marietta. I find myself learning so much now um, about you know what people need, what people are depending on, and and what services people rely on um, as well. And so. After kind of we touched we touched on Marietta and you you studied um, history and the intention of of becoming a teacher, but at some point at Marietta, right, you kind of switched your focus from you switched your focus from um, ed, being a teacher um, because of some of the or majoring in education, I guess, 
and doing some of the stuff you were doing on campus, like being student body president. So I think that's fantastic and wanted to share with everyone why you ran to be student body president and kind of what was your motivator behind that? Well, that's a great question, Brittany. I think I sort of fell into it. You know, I always had a heart for service and I went to Bellsville High School, class of 2011, and we always had a lot of school pride, school spirit, took pride in our community. And I think where I was able to bring some of that to Marietta is a big reason I fell into student government and eventually became student body president. When I walked onto campus, I knew that I was there because I wanted to teach high school social studies and be a coach. Uh, I played football and basketball and track in high school, and my teachers and coaches changed my life, and I wanted to do the same. And I love Marietta College. It's one of the best decisions I ever made was to go there. And a lot of folks know about our petroleum engineering program. They know about our six-time national champion baseball team. They know about the crew team that rose on D1 level. But I think sometimes folks forget about the McDonough Center for Business and Leadership. And even more so, I don't think people realized while you and I were at Marietta, our education program was ranked number one in the yeah. state of Ohio. And so I actually applied to 27 colleges and universities, wow. got, it, got accepted to 25 of them. And that's in part, uh, applying to so many was in part of not having great guidance <laughs> in my K-12 situation. Most kids ended up at community college, which is a great and affordable option, but I wanted something a little bit different. And so I shopped around and eventually landed at Marietta, which was the first school of the 27 I applied to. So I could have saved a lot of time. I just that first choice, but I chose Marietta for leadership program and the teacher leadership track specifically and the education program because I knew it was quality, but, and I really enjoyed both programs learned a lot doing some student teaching and observation at Williamstown High School in Williamstown, West Virginia, in Marietta Middle School in, in Marietta, Ohio. But as my time went on at Marietta, I became a resident assistant, an RA, working with first year students to make the academic and social transition to Marietta. Then I also became a tour guide. And so I got to work with prospective students and tell them all the reasons I loved Marietta College show them the residence hall, show them the dining hall, take them down the mall. And so worked in that recruitment and admissions area. And then through a variety of clubs, the College Democrats, uh, a number of others on campus, I got to know student life pretty well. And then Connor Walters asked me to be parliamentarian when I was a sophomore. That was one of the two appointed positions on the executive board alongside secretary uh, with the president, the vice president, the treasurer being elected. And I never really considered it before then, but thought it was a good opportunity to sharpen my Robert's Rule of Order and uh, parliamentary procedure and and jumped on board with four seniors. You know, Connor and Caleb and and Dan Hartman and Vincent were four seniors sort of running student government together. And then I was a sophomore, Mm -hmm. sort of a newcomer to the game. And they showed me and taught me what student government was at Marietta College and how they got involved in their vision for where it was then and where it had been and where they wanted it to go. And yep. that really positioned me to run for treasurer and fill Caleb Muller's seat. Caleb had put me on his committee, the appropriations committee, and I learned how to operate a $100,000 budget through the eyes of an expert. Caleb had done that job for two years. He revolutionized the process and I got to learn from the master in a sense. Nice. So, but then I had the student government experience and I knew about admissions and I knew about residence life and student life. And I kind of had a good feeling for how our campus worked and yep. then served a year alongside Jesse Johnson, one of my dear friends who I love, just got married. Congratulations, yep. Jesse. She was my roommate my senior year. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. What a great person to live with. So. I know. I loved it. She's fantastic. And so, um, I just remember her running and going through that. And so I was definitely interested about your process and running through it as well. Well, well, Jesse and Connor were both huge influences on me participating and getting involved and wanting to run and seeing all the great change that they could make. And then kind of having that experience plus a good feel for the campus overall. You know, it, I don't think a lot of people understand the machine that higher education is. Yeah. That we were at a tough time at Marietta. We had some recruitment and retention issues and it was easy for admissions to point fingers at student life and student life to point fingers at admissions. 
but I loved the people in all those departments and was doing all that different work, you know, as a student, not a full-time job, but I got a taste of all of it. And so I felt like I was positioned to run the organization, having been parliamentarian and treasurer and working with Connor and Jesse. And I felt like I understood our campus and our unique needs in a unique moment, and we could do some things around it. Sure. That motivated me to want to, to jump out there and serve. And I was really lucky to have great people alongside me. Uh, my best friends, Michael Fay and Kurt Fryer at Marietta, joined as treasurer and secretary. And then we had Bree Scott, who is in Alpha Z Delta, another person who studied history with me. Uh, she brought a different perspective to the table and did some great work around alcohol policy reform. And then the final piece was parliamentarian, and we had Kennedy Clyde step up and do that job. And she sort of then was able to learn how student government worked and lead a lot of change alongside us and then take over as my successor. Sure. I just saw the other day, uh, another young woman has been elected. And I think Marietta prides itself on diversity. There actually hasn't been another male president since me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it went Kennedy and then uh, Emily Drabeck and then Paige Bershay and then Emily Vigu and then a young woman named Rachel and now another young woman. So I think we're at like five of the last six or six of the last seven now that have been women. And so I think that's pretty cool too, but I really enjoyed my time as student body president. And I think we worked hard at creating a better experience for everyone and really just trying to solve problems where we could fill gaps where we could and create a new organization. We changed the name from student Senate to student government association SGA. When I was there, we did a new logo. We did new social media. Mm-hmm. Really wanted to rebrand it as a fresh start for the organization and for the campus. Yep. Making sure we were solving problems and, and building a better future for every pioneer. Absolutely. And so that actually is a great segue into after you had graduated, um, we talked about how you went out on the campaign trail. Um, quick question about that, though. Was that something you always wanted or was it one of those things where you were just kind of trying to decide what's my next step going to be? Should I go out and find a job or should I just go for this and just see what the experience is like? Interesting. Yeah. So uh, Chuck Shulevsky is the president and CEO of People's Bank. He's on the board of trustees at Marietta. And Chuck and I had talked about me working at People's Bank after graduation. We interacted some at board of trustees meetings. And I really thought I, I would go that route and, and then work on my education licensure and, and end up in the classroom potentially. But back in 2012, I already mentioned my good friends, Michael and Kurt, we rode down to a Obama rally. President Obama had a re-election rally in Athens, Ohio. And I heard a man speak there who I met when I was seven years old at the Monroe County Fair, Governor Ted Strickland. And Governor Strickland was there to introduce President Obama. And Governor Strickland said something that changed my life, just a little thing that changed my life. He said, and Lou Gentile, State Senator Lou Gentile, is like a son to me, and we've got to reelect Lou Gentile. And I had never heard that name before. But then I did some research. And I realized Lou Gentile was my state senator, both at home in Bellsville, Ohio, where I've always been a voter, and in Marietta, where I was doing a lot of work with the College Democrats. So he represented 10 counties in Ohio's 30th Senate District. So after I heard Governor Strickland, a legend in Ohio politics, after I heard him say that, I really wanted to meet Lou Gentile. And sure enough, Senator Gentile was up for re-election and came to one of our College Democrats meetings. Nice. We, we connected. We hit it off. He said, come spend a day with me at the state house." And I thought I was going to be there for 30 minutes or less, a quick meeting. I stayed the whole day. Nice. I was there from eight in the morning until five or six o'clock at night. He's pulling me into committee meetings and constituency meetings and introducing me uh, to my state rep, Jack Sarah, and, and other folks. And he introduced me there. He said, this is Taylor Myers. He goes to Marietta College in my district. He's from Monroe County, Ohio. Uh, son of a steel worker, native of coal country, and he's going to be a public servant. He just doesn't know it yet. (laughs) And that honestly, you know, Ted giving that speech made me want to meet Lou. Meeting Lou made me want to be involved more in politics and government. And then I found out Lou Gentile got his start in politics by being Ted Strickland's driver. First Congressman Strickland and then Governor Strickland. And then eventually Lou became the deputy director of the governor's office of Appalachia under Governor Strickland, and then went on to be a state representative and a state senator. Yeah. And those experiences, those mentors made me want to 
be involved in politics and government generally, but I also wanted to be the next Lou Gentile, and <laughs> a friend and a hero and a mentor. And what better way to be like Lou than to drive Ted? And so when Ted had announced for the U.S. Senate, I really pursued that opportunity aggressively and was very thankful and grateful to, to Lou and some others being good references for me. And I actually met Governor Strickland at Ohio Democratic Party Legacy Dinner. And we had been working on a voting rights issue and we kind of beat back a, an anti-suffrage uh, proposal that was in the Ohio transportation budget. And as College Democrats of Ohio president, they seated me at Governor Strickland's table. And so I was sitting there and, and Governor Strickland said, well, what are you gonna do after graduation? And I said, how about I drive you around the state? Like we did. <laughs> and he said, well, we could see about that. And then a few weeks later, Ted came down to Marietta, Ohio on my birthday. And he was speaking at the Washington County Democratic Party dinner. And he said, and by the way, you've got a young man here, Taylor Myers. I told him to throw his social calendar out the window for the next 18 months because he's going to drive me around the state. And that's how he gave me the job offer. It was really surreal uh, to wow. be in the room with 100 people I really cared about and, and have him announce it in that way. And then we, we did. We spent 18 months traveling Ohio together, 70,000 miles, uh, raising $11.5 million, shaking hands with all kinds of people and connecting with voters across Ohio's 88 counties. Yeah. And what if you, and not to put you on the spot, but if you could think back to like one of the most memorable moments, I'm sure getting the offer delivered that way was probably maybe top uh, memorable moment, but what's another one that sticks out in your mind as you just traveled around Ohio for 18 months? I got it. Let me get you this picture. You're gonna sure. love I had this on my fridge. I hold it up with a GoPios magnet. Nice. <laughs> but this is a, a photo here. Yeah. If you can see it. Yep. Um, so these are two people uh, staying with Governor Strickland. We met them in Scioto County, Ohio, which is down on the Kentucky border. It's Governor Strickland's home county. Governor Strickland grew up on Duck Run, the eighth of nine children. His house burnt down as a kid. Wow. Actually lived in the chicken coop while they renovated their barn to be a house. And wow. his dad was a steel worker too, humble means, large family. And we've always connected over that. But on this day from this photo, uh, Governor Strickland and I were doing a tour around Appalachia. Uh, we had started in Columbus and went down to Chillicothe, went to the farmer's market. Then we had an event in Scioto County, and then we were going to be on our way to Athens County. And Ted said, do we have a little bit of time, Taylor? And I said, yeah, we've got some extra time today. He said, I'd love to show you the murals down by the Ohio River. Oh, I know those murals. Aren't they terrific? Yeah, they're cool. Yeah, I just love them. And, and it's the old flood wall that they're painted on. You know, Portsmouth on the river, floods from time to time. And so we're walking and it's 95 degrees. We're, we're in the middle of summer heat, Southern Ohio. And we meet this family. We meet this, this dad and this daughter, and Ted says, uh, you know, tell me about you. And the man responded with a question. He said, have you ever heard of Habitat for Humanity? And Ted said, oh, of course, you know, I volunteered, I've done that. And, you know, I chime in, I said, yeah, it's great. And then the dad said, well, they just built our house. And he said, it was wonderful. We got to pick out the paint color and, and we got to help design it and we got to help build it. And that took Ted, you know, took us aback. We weren't expecting that. Mm -hmm. And then, so then Ted turns to the, the young girl, teenager, and says, as we're standing in 95 degree heat and sweating, and pour, <laughs> he says, what's your favorite part of the house? And she says, it has heat. Yeah. Before they were living in their car and, you, you know, you can't run your car constantly. Right. You know, you're bundling up, wearing blankets. And so for her, even in that moment, in that hot Ohio sun, just having heat, heat was her favorite part of this house. And I think, you know, the campaign world is really interesting because you are raising money from wealthy people. I met millionaires. I, I met billionaire Tom Steyer on that campaign, yeah. the president. I met Hillary Clinton. I met Bill Clinton. I met, you know, Senator Warren, Senator Booker. And those are all really fun. And, and those are the pictures that'll get you likes on Instagram. Yep. But this is the picture 
I have one that I hang up on my fridge and I had one that was hanging in my office before we started working virtually. I use that to remind me why I do the work I do. For sure. And those are the people that you go out there and you campaign for. Yeah. And you, you talk about housing policy, you talk about food policy, education policy, transportation, infrastructure, military, whatever it is, you got to keep the regular everyday person in mind, the, the coal miner, the steel worker, the family that finally got that Habitat for Humanity house. And so yeah. that perspective, and we left that event, and we went up to Athens, we met a woman who suffered from heroin addiction. Yeah. Just an hour later, we meet this woman who suffered from heroin addiction. Now she's in recovery and she was back in 2016 during the campaign. She was studying uh, criminal justice at a local community college because she then wanted to work with at-risk populations and help beat this drug epidemic that yeah. Ohio is the epicenter of. And so you meet all these people and it's really inspiring. And I could go on for, for years about how influential the campaign was in my life and my perspective. And, and I just felt so fortunate to work for a great man. Yeah. Strickland began his career as a Methodist minister working in a children's orphanage, a children's home. Wow. And then he went on and got a PhD in psychology and worked as a prison psychologist at a maximum security prison in Lucasville. And for me to wake up every day from six, seven, eight in the morning until 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night and be next to someone who's so grounded in his faith and so grounded in public service, it was, it was truly humbling and absolutely yeah. life-changing. That's great. I, fantastic story. I didn't know all the details. And so I love that you share that. And one thing, just another book, if you want to kind of write Ooh. it down, I was listening to NPR probably six, eight months ago, and there was a book on there called Dope Sickness. Or no, Whoa. Dope Sick. Dope Sick or Dope Sickness. I've got it on my bookshelf. It's Dope Sick. My yeah, Dope Sick. Carol bought it for me. He said, I got to read it. I got to read it. It's great. It's um, more like Virginia um, and I think parts of Maryland. Um, but very similar story just around the heroin epidemic that's going on and the overprescription of d drugs. And it goes mm -hmm. into Purdue and the lawsuit and stuff like that. And again, you know, even though I was in Ohio for four years, there was just so many components of that book that I just had no idea about. Cause I, I didn't know anyone that dealt with that type of addiction um, and dealt with uh, that struggle of, of turning to a drug like heroin. So dope sick, right? Dope sick. And have you read Dreamland? No, but it's, I have it. Just yeah, it's, I, I did it on audio and I have the hard copy now. Can't recommend it enough. Yeah. Just really explaining how this all happened. Yep. But you also, you get a lot of insight into what it's like to grow up in a small, rural, poor town in Mexico, and this is your only chance out. And yep. then they actually targeted uh, more mid-sized, whiter cities. Rather than going to, to New York, Chicago, et cetera, they made a concentrated effort to go to Columbus, to Toledo, to Huntington, West Virginia, to Portsmouth, Ohio. And the name of the book, Dreamland, was the name of the swimming pool in Scioto County. And oh, wow. I did not know that. I used to swim there as a kid, and now it's bulldozed over and it's got like a Kmart on it or something. Yep. And so that's the analogy they use. But I definitely want to read Dope Sick and appreciate the recommendation. Yeah, it's a good book. It's it's well written as well. And and one last thing just about one thing you talked about was the murals in um, Portsmouth. Mm. So three or four years ago, I had a meeting uh, with Shawnee State down in Portsmouth. So, uh, you know, oh, my yeah. whole sales team flies into Columbus. We kind of pile into a couple of cars and we're, we're driving down. And you see the signs, though, about like, do you need help or help with addiction? Yeah. And, you know, my sales team came from all over the country, right? Most people are from big cities and stuff like that. So again, kind of unaware of what necessarily was going on. And they kind of turned to me and they're like, you went to school down here, didn't you? And I was like, well, yeah, just kind of up the river, but not far. And they were like, what is up with all of these signs? And I was like, this is a serious problem. And it's kind mm -hmm. of now back then when it was happening, it was just kind of a blip on people's radar. Like mm, people knew it was going on, but probably not to the severity of what it is. And so kind of just talking to them about the issue. And then we're just kind of walking around Portsmouth. They're like, well, what's here? And I was like, well, honestly, I don't know. It's an old town. And we come across these murals and everyone was like, this is cool. This is different. Yeah. Like not what you would expect when you're walking around Portsmouth. And so that moment actually sticks out in my head a lot. Just when I think about Ohio is, and especially Southern Ohio is just, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's these hidden gems. Marietta is one of them, you know, the murals, there's great people, but 
there are some very serious issues that get overlooked. And I think it's just because, you know, there's big cities, people are from different parts of the country and everyone has their own concerns, right? Um, But we're finally recognizing that heroin and the prescription drug overdoses and stuff like that are are legitimate issues to be focusing on. Um, And so kind of going back to what you said, the the average person, the everyday person should be front of mind when we're talking about politics and campaigning. And I definitely don't want to get into a political discussion, but I think that's one thing we kind of saw with the last election. And even right now, right, is there's a lot of disconnect between politicians and just everyday citizens. And so people want to see themselves campaigning. So whether it was Strickland, whether it's you, you know, you came from that part of Ohio, you know what it's like to be one of five and dependent on uh, government assistance and different programs with your school. You understand what that is like. And so I think people like you and with with staying grounded and humble and hungry um, is, is going to really help shape our political landscape that seems to be kind of in a weird place right now. And so I definitely appreciate people like you um, that really want to fight for the little guy. Um, And kind of transitioning from that. So you um, did the campaign trail for uh, 18 months and who you were campaigning for didn't win the election, correct? Right. We lost. It was in 2016. Uh, And before we jump forward, the only thing I want to add about Portsmouth is uh, aside from steel, it was also the shoelace capital of the world. The more you know. I did not know that. That's in dreamland. But just so your listeners out there know, I think there used to be a minor league football team called like the Portsmouth Shoelaces or something. But got it. That's that's my fun history fact for the <laughs> trailblazing, trailblazing text today. I like it. I appreciate that. Um, so you guys lost the election. So you kind of found yourself being like, what's next? And you kind of went back to kind of your teaching passion and your, your, what you studied and you found yourself working, uh, for teach for America, right? Yeah. So my friends know this as the unemployment sadness tour. And I always (laughs) joke and say it was the happiest of times and the saddest of times. Sure. Uh, because you go, go, go on the, the campaign trail. I had three days off in 18 months. Yep. And honestly, you, from the moment you wake up and your feet hit the floor until the moment your head hits the pillow, you're working. And even then, you're still working. There was a, a woman that used to work for Ted. She sort of discovered Pete Buttigieg. Liz Smith is her name, L-I-S, Liz Smith. And Liz had an article recently where it said she keeps her phone under her pillow with the volume turned up and wakes up and responds to things as it comes in. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Politics is definitely a mix of like the West Wing and Parks and Rec and House of Cards all together. <laughs> Veep, Veep as well. So it's, it's a little bit of all those things, but it's definitely not for the faint of hearts and it's sure. intense and you pour yourself into it. But then you wake up on November 9th or whatever and you have nowhere to go. Right. Nothing to do. And, and that's really shocking. And I, I know some people are probably feeling this a little bit now, whether they're unemployed or they're just working from home or even if they're an essential worker and out there, it's such a different life right now. Yep. Uh, and it was that kind of shock for me. And so I, I took the holidays to sort of recuperate and, you know, get myself in order. And then it, I, it was harder than I thought uh, to, to move forward and have that next job. When you lose, there's no clear plan. And right. if you want to stay in politics, it's going to be six months until the next cycle, what they call it, opens up. But for me, I, I woke up and I thought, okay, Hillary lost, Ted lost, Lou Gentile, my hero who was supposed to win, who ran 18 points ahead of Hillary in his district, still fell short and lost. Yeah. So everybody I wanted to win lost. I had no job. I was also not feeling great about the political process at that time, admittedly. Felt a little bit disenchanted. And I thought, where can I go to make a difference and have an impact? And sure. You know, in kindergarten, I said I wanted to be a teacher. Fifth grade career day, I wore a whistle, said I wanted to be a gym teacher and a coach. And yep. then you, and I fell in love with history, and that became the obvious route. But so then I started working towards that again. Worked three months at Olentangy Orange High School outside of Columbus, Ohio, in, in Delaware County, just north of Franklin. And I worked in a moderate, severe, multi-handicapped classroom, a unit of 11 students. And we were really fortunate. We had two full-time teachers a student teacher, and four aides. And I worked inside that environment 
helping students, six who were nonverbal, five verbal, students in wheelchairs, students with all different types of conditions, make sure they've got the quality of education they deserve. Sure. And really was a great experience to better understand IEPs in our diverse, IEPs being individualized education plans. Thanks. Individualized education programs. And, and those are for our diverse learners, which includes talented and gifted students, includes autistic students, everything you can imagine. You can IEPs and behavior plans. So while I was doing that, I looked at a few different jobs, including staying at Olentangy and teaching history. But I really wanted to work with a rural population like I grew up in. I really wanted to work in a, a low income setting like I grew up in. And I wanted a little bit of something different, a little taste outside of Ohio. And I thought back to my education class with Tanya Judd Pacella at Marietta, teacher leadership. And we learned a lot about Teach for America. And at the time, I actually wrote an essay arguing against Teach for America's existence in undergrad. But here I was. It made so much sense for me personally. Sure. And I thought, what better way to step outside your comfort zone and have an open mind than go work for an organization you argued against? Sure. And so I applied. And it's an intense process. It's like four or five phases in the application process. And so I went through that and I did the stuff over online and the virtual and the phone interview and then the in-person teaching demonstration and the follow-up calls, et cetera. And ultimately, uh, I was offered a spot. Then there are 50 plus locations in Teach for America. Well, wow. preference one through 10. And so I researched every single one and I was looking for low income, rural, outside of Ohio. And really the ones that stood out to me were the Appalachian region of Eastern Kentucky and then Eastern North Carolina, which is where I ended up preferencing first and was very fortunate to get my top preference. And so then the summer of 2017, uh, two years after I graduated from Marietta, I loaded up all my stuff in my Dodge Dart, said goodbye to my dear roommate and friend, Maggie Watt, who is now a doctor. She was in med school at the time in Marietta with me in undergrad. And drove down to North Carolina, the, the land of the pine, the old North state, and did a month long training where I taught 14 students in summer school setting and refined my practice and skills, met some of my best friends in life. And then we dispersed amongst roughly 10 different counties in the Eastern North Carolina region. And I was located about an hour North of Raleigh and Durham on the Virginia border, the North Carolina-Virginia border, in a little town called Warrington, Warrington, North Carolina. Moved into 209 Brehon Street with Rob Carrier and Grant O'Brien. We called ourselves the Brehon Boys, <laughs> the, the three of us, and, and they both taught math. And then I went and taught high school social studies at Warren New Tech High School uh, for two years, teaching world history, civics and economics, and ACT prep. Wow. Incredible. Yeah, I didn't... I know of Teach for America. I don't, you're the only person I know that has taught, but I know plenty of people have. Um, and I didn't know that you actually got to rank or say what your preferences were. I thought they kind of just like sent you a slip in the mail and just were like, all right, pack your bags to, you know, wherever you're going to go. And so even though you got kind of your priority or your preference, uh, you got to go somewhere that was rural, uh, kind of like to your um, uh, upbringing and where you're from, what was some of the challenges? I know you you talked about the diversity of the school, which was very different than kind of the school you went to and just some other kind of issues that you ran into that maybe you weren't expecting or challenges. Yeah, so most of my friends, I can only think of one maybe that also preferenced Eastern North Carolina first. A lot of people that do Teach for America come from very privileged backgrounds. It's an Ivy League to TFA pipeline. Right. And they want to go to New York and DC and LA and all these exciting places and great cities. You know, New York is just as much America as Bellsville, Ohio or Marietta, Ohio or Warrington, North Carolina. And I think that's important for everybody to remember, no matter whether you're coming from New York or from Houston or from Bellsville, we're all part of that same country. Yeah. And so I was really lucky to get my preference and I think I was more comfortable than most people having grown up on a 22 acre farm, five miles outside of a town of 300, with no stoplights, you know, warranted stoplights. Yeah. Yeah. 
twice the population of Bellsville, two and a half. So, but it's still challenging. You know, I, over the summer, all 14 of my students identified as black. And one day I took a kid's cell phone and this is an eighth grader going into ninth grade. And he said, you just don't know how to teach black kids. And that, that knocks you back on your heels. Sure. I said to you, cause you, you think about the power and privilege you bring as a white person. And then for me also identifying as straight and identifying as male and having that, that mid, that lower to, you know, central middle-class background, that working class background, I was bringing a lot of power and privilege into the table. And so then you thought, well, shoot, what if I don't know how, yeah. to, how to teach a racially diverse classroom? But then you learn that in a sense, yes, power and privilege, race, socioeconomic status, central to, to education equity. Absolutely. But also to another extent, if you love kids and you display that you're a caring adult and you pour yourself into that job, yeah, you can build relationships and, and you can make it work regardless of how you identify and how they identify. You just have to be aware of yeah. those issues and, and those things at play. And to me, teaching is sacred work. You know, it's some of the most important work that takes place every day. And so that summer school experience was important. Then you go into the classroom and you realize I'm working in a right to work state. I don't have a union protecting me. Right. Making 35,000, which is okay as a starting pay. And, you know, not bad at all, especially living in Wharton. But then all of a sudden I'm feeding kids yeah. because the school lunch, I, Brittany, I tried eating the school lunch for a week. I couldn't do it. Ooh. I, I bit into a tomato and a salad. It tastes like cough syrup. Uh, mm. I had a fish sandwich that was cold and the cheese wasn't really melted on it and there was hair on it. Okay. So that's, that's zero for two. Then day three, you come back and the breadsticks rock hard. And then they don't even know what kind of meat it is on the fourth day. It's that kind of thing. And so, sure. but kids are relying upon universal free breakfast, universal free lunch. But we were at 100% free for every student for both breakfast and lunch. Oh, wow. Warren County. And the population of students I was teaching, roughly 60% black, 20% white, 10% Latinx, and 10% Halawasa pony the indigenous tribe in Warren and Halifax and Nash counties, North Carolina, primarily. And so you've got a lot of race issues at play. And it was a community that was similar to Bellsville, Ohio, where I grew up, similar in a lot of ways, in ways I traded coal and steel for cotton and tobacco. Uh, but the racial roots and, and the lack of solidarity and, and union rights that come out of cotton and tobacco, that's a big difference than sure. the, Coal and steel, working class union solidarity environment I grew up in. And, and so North and South, what, what a big difference there. And so certainly issues of race, certainly trying to make sure kids were fed. I had a student, he uh, lost his father. Then his mother abandoned him. Then his grandfather passed away. He had two brothers who were both incarcerated. Now you have no mother, no father, no grandparents. Your brothers are incarcerated. So he got sent to live with his brother's ex-girlfriend. Wow. So he's living with his brother's ex-girlfriend. And I'm trying to get him an air mattress to sleep on because there's no bed there. Then he's, and this is a 14-year-old freshman. And he's dating a girl whose mother and father divorced. Father, drug, drug abuse. Mother, alcoholic. The mother moved in with an abusive boyfriend, taking the girl with her, and now she's sleeping on the floor too. And now these two 14-year-olds from those two very traumatic backgrounds, the only people they feel like they have are each other, which is not the healthiest thing for a 14-year-old. Right, right. And then they show up to my class and I'm supposed to teach them world history. I mean, how do you give a shit about World War One? <laughs> you know, when you're trying when to you're survive. Really war. Yeah, it's yeah. A lot. And then I had a, another kid, uh, just total food insecurity, uh, was not getting any food at home. And so I would keep in my desk drawer different foods they would like. I had apples and peanut butter in my classroom with some apple cutters. Yep. Kids would just come in. And it was like a, a factory assembly line. They'd make apples and peanut butter. And, uh, but that was, you know, financially challenging for me when I do have, God bless Marietta College, would never trade my education, but I've got some student loans. Sure, sure. You're still trying to be a 20, or 25 year old and have a good time too. And so 
you're balancing your debt and your expenses and trying to feed and clothe kids and get them air mattresses and also learn the state curriculum for world history and civics and economics and implement it effectively. Sure. And the, the thing that really disgusts me is the push for standardized testing. And I just really saw how it dictated uh, some, I usually got left alone a little bit more because my, my end of year test didn't factor into our school report card. And mm-hmm. so didn't matter as much in the school report card lens for the district, how my students performed. But then in turn, that meant I got less resources, less support, uh, less attention. They would buy programs yep. for the folks teaching the biology two class, the, the math one class and the English two class that the rest of the teachers didn't get. Yeah. And, and not only social studies, but you think about music and the arts and other electives, foreign language, all getting put on the back burner. Yeah. I just think that's dangerous for our kids and for our society. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, me personally, I've never been a great standardized tester just in general. Um, and so I felt I was always kind of unfairly graded when it came to stuff like that, but you kind of just accept it is what it is. Um, But based on my background, though, I was fortunate enough where I knew that wasn't going to hinder me. I knew I was going to find my way to college. It was just kind of an obstacle that I had. Um, But, you know, when it comes down to schools and funding, you know, when these kids, like you talked about, you had two kids that were sleeping on the floor, right? And they, they didn't even have any family. They just had each other. So how can those kids show up for a standardized test and, you know, perform when they're just trying to survive outside of the school wall? So, and I think right now I've been, you know, I, I don't live in the education world, but I, I know enough people that are educators and there's a real discussion of like how necessary are these standardized tests? Obviously, I don't know about where you live, but like in Texas, um, schools have are shut down for the rest of the year, right? So that means right. none of those tests are going to be happening. Now what, right? You know, do we see that it benefits students? Do we see that it doesn't really benefit the school? You know, what is what answers or what insights are we going to get based on these standardized tests not happening? So I think that's another thing that has just been thrown to the forefront uh, that that we kind of just let happen, I think, because it was just the way it was happening, right? You have your school, you have standardized testing, students take it, you get your funding, mm-hmm. and it just kind of became this pattern, right? And so I think we're going to hopefully see some changes just based on the insights that we get from today. And so- a, or, an opportunity to completely rethink education. Yep. Do we really need grades to, I mean, my one of my areas- of research has been equitable grading. I went to a conference Teach for America sent me to in Boston. Uh, I met an author who wrote extensively on equitable grading and just the idea that the zero to 100 scale is broken. Why do you have a 60% chance of failure and a 40% chance of passing? Why are we still operating as if this is the industrial revolution of the 1800s with education? I mean, the reason we have summer break is twofold. One, families needed their kids to help them with the farm. Yeah. And two, the the summer heat is intense and a lot of schools didn't have air conditioning. And that's still a problem in some of our poorer schools, schools that need remodeled. But we could rethink the calendar. We could rethink standardized testing. These are all decisions we made, a system we created, and we can completely rethink it. And I think I really benefited from having a strong leadership coach through TFA uh, I think everybody who's in that position wants to do a good job, but I had the best of the yep. 10 in Eastern North Carolina. So I was really lucky for that. I had a principal who supported me. She stood by teachers. She was on our side. I had a department chair who used to be an attorney. This is someone that went to law school, practiced law for 10 years, then decided he could have more of an impact in the classroom. Loved history, new pedagogy, loved the kids, was from the community. Yep. A, a woman from Jamaica who I became buddies with, who was a, a lifelong educator. Those types of figures taught me how to be a better teacher, how to be a better leader, how to rethink education. And even the executive director of TFA ENC, Andrew Lakis, mm-hmm. he was so accessible. This is someone managing the whole, it would be the equivalent of a university president giving you their cell phone number and say, call me if you have an idea or yeah. concern. Yep. And so I was really lucky to have Andrew, to have Travis. Packer to have Mike Williams and Jennifer Wilker and uh, Wadia Lee and other people like that who made me a better teacher and taught me not only how to teach, but how to teach social studies in a racially diverse, rural, low-income community. Sure. An outsider. Yep. And, you know, as an outsider. I could bond with kids over 
yeah, people went hunting and fishing where I'm from too. People wore camo to prom too, <laughs> but, but some different issues there too. And, and some different experiences we've had. So I feel really fortunate for those mentors and, and people around me for giving me a great teach for America experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one, you know, we're going through a pretty traumatic time, but I think there are some silver linings that are happening. Um, for example, you know, people are now reconnecting they're taking a step back, but I think like you said, it's an opportunity to really rethink the education system. And so if anything, hopefully out of this dark time, uh, the silver lining is, is that we get the opportunity to revamp education and kind of just rethink what we're doing to provide, you know, the best possible education that everyone, um, deserves. And so I think, I think we'll see some changes who knows when, but I think it's really forcing people to, uh, step back. So with that, you know, campaign trail, um, teach for America, you're now at Johns Hopkins. And so I I wanted to have you on because you truly did blaze your own trail and and then went on a campaign trail. Right. And so I thought trailblazing text was a, a fantastic, you know, opportunity to hear your story. And so kind of moving away from your career and kind of your career path, just to kind of end a little bit on a a lighter note. So you're originally from Ohio, you live now in Baltimore. And so how long have you lived in Baltimore? Moved to Baltimore, July of 2019. So yeah, coming up on probably like nine, 10 months now. Nice, nice. My mom is originally from Baltimore. She grew up in Timonium. No um, kidding. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit so of roots. You, you heard some about crab cakes then, probably. Well, that was going to be my next question. So my mom, I think, makes the best crab cakes that you can mm. find. I almost won't order them at restaurants because I feel <laughs> like my mom's is uh, they're so good. So I was going to ask you: Have you um, kind of dove into crab cakes? And if so, where is your favorite place that you found so far? I actually. When I came, I drove up from North Carolina to Baltimore uh, to interview. Sure. In the interview, crab cakes came up. <laughs> our, our director of recruitment, Calvin Wise, native of Baltimore, loves the city. He said, if you want good crab cakes, you got to go to GMN, G&M restaurant down by the airport. And so I took a detour on my way out of town and stopped there after my interview and tried them. And the bar, t- I was sitting up like on a second level, I could hear the bartender down below. Uh, these folks said, are your crab cakes good? He said, they're like cocaine. <laughs> well, hey. I thought, okay, uh, <laughs> better try it. I've never dabbled in the, the white dust there, but I'll, I'll try these crab cakes. So, pretty good, pretty good. Delicious. They're okay. absolutely terrific. Can't wait until this is over so I can get back and, and go back to G&M and, and get some more crab cakes. Awesome. So I guess kind of the two things left. So you, the crab cakes, G and M restaurant, right? Yeah. Okay. So what, um, just because during this time we're trying to support restaurants, local businesses. So what are some back in Ohio that you've been trying to support, uh, throughout this time? I've been thinking a lot about the restaurant industry. I've got a friend who works in the craft beer industry in Columbus, Ohio, my best buddy from high school. And he would remind folks that a lot of places are delivering craft brewers right now. And so definitely check your local breweries and and see if that's something they're doing and try to order and support that. Uh, He's at Land Grant, which is one of my favorite places in Columbus, Land Grant Brewery. I also am a big fan of, of Great Lakes up in Cleveland and Rheingeist down in Cincinnati. And of course, the Marietta Brewing Company in Marietta and Jackie O's down in Athens. Those are some of my, my favorite breweries and I'm trying through merchandise to support them and through some gift card opportunities. Also in, in thinking about Bellsville Diner. Uh, the Bellsville Diner is the, the one restaurant in Bellsville, Ohio. And I still read the Monroe County Beacon. I've got the digital subscription and <laughs> paper copy to my parents' house. And I, I've been thinking about places in Woodsfield, the county seat, uh, like Jerry Lee's, pizza. They were mentioned in an article the other day and just being thoughtful about gift cards and merchandise and takeout and trying to do that from afar for me, since I'm not in Ohio right now, mm-hmm. I encourage everybody just to think about your favorite places and figure out the best way you can support your local restaurants and breweries. 
Sure. Sure. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, I definitely appreciate your time. I love your story. Um, I knew bits and pieces of it. And so I'm glad I got to sit down with you and and really kind of dig in a little bit further. But before I kind of let you go and enjoy the rest of your weekend, you know, hindsight's often 2020, right? You look back on things and you can say, oh, I wish I would have done that or I should have done this. You know, is there anything that you would have done differently? Uh, Is there anything that really sticks out in your mind of kind of a long, uh, a lifelong lesson uh, that you would want to share? It's tough because I'm so happy to be where I am and I'm so grateful for all the experiences I've had. There are, of course, a lot of decisions that I made in in leadership roles, in my personal life, uh, as a follower of Christ, a lot of different decisions that I wish I could go and, and do a little bit differently. But you also can't play that that game of regrets and and second guessing yourself because you wouldn't be where you are if sure. not for that that broken, complicated, imperfect path. But I think if I was sitting down with someone and they said, "Oh, well, what made a difference for you? How are you where you are?" It's mentors. Sure, you need great mentors. Lou Gentile and Ted Strickland and and Justin Brennan. Those are my political mentors, and they taught me how to be successful in politics and government. They taught me the value of public service and helping others. When I think of education, I think of people like Bill Bauer and Carol Hancock and Tanya Judd Pacella, who taught me at Marietta. Sure. So many other professors in other areas, you know, Schaefer and Tager and um, Schaefer was a great professor. I had him for a couple classes. His his classes were hard, but I I loved them. Almost impossible to get an A. Yeah. But you're going to learn so much. He's got all the energy. He's writing all over the board. I think Mike Tager puts his sources with his lecture, matches them up, pairs them up better than any other educator I've seen, and and just finds these great questions. And Katie McDaniels um, in in history, she kicked my butt. She gave me one of my two C's in life. The other came from Gama Perucci. (laughs) Bill Fournier taught me so much. So you have all those people at Marietta. And then I mentioned the TFA people, you know, my principal, Jennifer Wilker, the department chair, Mike Williams, my leadership coach, one of my best friends in life, Travis Packer. Uh, Andrew Lakis. So these people, when you make a mistake, they help you analyze it and figure out how to pivot and move forward. When you have an important life decision to make, they'll sit down with you and look at the pros, look at the cons, help you think about what's your mission, what's your vision, what's your passion and your purpose, and how do you align that practice and that purpose together and make it really work. And I hope to use what I'm learning here at Hopkins to help low-income rural students access college and careers. And so that's a piece of this puzzle, having my eyes open to power and privilege and and race and class through TFA versus my lived experience. I mean, growing up, there was a time my dad was on strike, something unions do when they negotiate contracts, they go on strike. And I remember they were going to foreclose on our house and and we're going and picking up food and grocery bags down at the union hall. And he's getting $50 a week or a hundred dollars a week from the union. And that's all you've got. And they don't have any savings and you've got the wick and the free lunch and the heap. And so when you have that lived experience and that professional experience and those great mentors, it can keep you grounded. Uh, it can make sure you have clear eyes as you walk and you try to serve your community and just make things a little bit easier for folks and a little sure. bit better for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of just to tie it all together, just hearing your story, it's very evident that I feel that your early experiences, kind of your childhood really shaped your path, right? Your, your dad is a, is a hardworking man. Your mom was an educator and she also raised you guys. So you guys were fortunate to have an educator actually raise you and, and develop Mm -hmm. you as children. Um, and then kind of just took that and kind of made your own path with it, right? Getting into politics, making the change for the people that you care about. And then from there going into education and, and really literally shaping the next generation. Generation and it is now kind of uh, spurred some curiosity on your part of the zero to five kind mm-hmm. of education or um, child care, for example. And now you're working at Hopkins, right? A renowned institution helping kids get to Hopkins, helping them get to their college education. And so um, even though your career path has been very different roles, it's very evident where your passions lie and um, the world that you're trying to create. So, you know, on behalf of myself, and I'm sure every person that you have come in contact with, whether it's mentors, peers, coworkers, students, I'm sure they greatly appreciate 
uh, all the work that you do. And again, I appreciate you coming on to Trailblazing Text and sharing your story. Um, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. Thank you so much. Uh, two more shout outs to give that I, I forgot. Matthew Young and Bob Pastor and all the work they did with me in student government and, and teaching me in leadership and history too. But Brittany, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for giving me the chance to speak with you. I can't wait to share your podcast with all my friends. Awesome. Text, I think it's going to be a huge success and I'm glad you're able to do this. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, I'll definitely let you know when I release it. And so have a great rest of your weekend and uh, we'll chat soon. You too. Thanks so much, Brittany. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.